Hallelujah. Father, we are so thankful this morning because of Christ, the better Adam, that this song, this cry, this plea from the psalmist is answered in our lives. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever because Christ, the representative of the new covenant, shed His blood on our behalf, was crucified for our transgressions, was beaten and bruised, the chastisement of our peace was upon Him, that we might dwell with You forever. It is in this work on Calvary that we place our eternal hope and we place our assurance of salvation. It is in this confession that we make our stand this day. It is in this glorious truth, Lord, that we find such joy, meaning, Lord, to our absolutely renewed lives and every good reason, too many to count, to lift up our praises and our adoration to you for planning and purposing and your eternal decree to accomplish in time every last detail necessary to secure for yourself and elect people to the praise of your great name who are called out of darkness into your marvelous light and now join their voices together in worship upon the realization of their salvation in Christ, lifting up their anthem of praise to you. Surely there is one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and we have met Him in Jesus Christ our Lord. And for this we give praise today. Now as we turn to your holy word, I pray that you would open, open our hearts wide to receive the treasure, the riches, the beauty, the glory, the prophecy there contained from ages past, fulfilled in Christ and everywhere in between. Let our hearts be moved to worship and adoration upon the truth that we ascertain this day through your Spirit's use of this means, and may it equip us to boldly and consistently proclaim you, Lord, in our life and our obedience and our profession to a world yet caught in their sin, and to give them the message of hope in Jesus Christ alone. Thank you for this day, for this time. May you be glorified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, praise God for the opportunity to open His Holy Scriptures together. It is such a gift to us. I hope we never lose sight or take for granted the precious worth of God's Holy Word recorded infallibly for us to explore every nook and corner and to see what riches He has buried there for us through the Spirit's help to ascertain. This morning, would you turn with me in your Scriptures to Nahum chapter 3? where we will consider our series from this minor prophet. The book of Nahum, chapter 3, will be our primary text, verses 1 through 10. While you're turning there, I'll give you a purpose statement or aim for this message. It is my prayer that the Spirit would use the proclamation of His Word in Nahum 3, 1 through 10 today, that we might appreciate all the more the city of God in contrast to the city of man. In the book of Nahum, we have, of course, a prophecy against the city of man as it's represented in Nineveh. The city of man will be destroyed. It will come under judgment because it has transgressed the law of God and the day of reckoning is on the horizon. And to this day, Nahum prophesies. Furthermore, as I've thought about this a bit beyond this purpose statement, I would like us to realize how to live in light of a surrounding culture that may share more uh, similarities with Nineveh than the city of God than we would prefer. And I submit to you, it is in my estimation, 
Life in the West these days looks more like Nineveh and less like the city of God, it seems, with each passing day. As, as far as we can tell, in so many facets and areas of life, a cloud of sinfulness and stupor and deception seems to descend over the collective hearts of men in our nation. So as we find ourselves sharing uh, some, of, some similar circumstances that Nahum himself did when he prophesied to this wicked city, let us take a cue from him to speak prophetically the Word of God into a dark culture in hopes that God would use His truth proclaimed to call people out of darkness into His marvelous light, indeed to bring repentance. But if God does not bring a wide-scale revival in our land, and it pleases His glory at some point in the future, perhaps even relatively near future, to bring sweeping, wide-scale judgment and destruction on America itself, we should know from Scripture, including the book of Nahum, and we'll close this morning in the book of Revelation, that we still have all the reason to rejoice and praise our holy God for manifesting His glorious and holy attributes in the destruction of a people that have transgressed His law, have rebelled against Him, and deserve retribution in order that His truth might be magnified even in the destruction of the wicked. So these are applications and purposes for the book of Nahum that we can think about today as we explore these heavy passages. The title of this morning's message is Good Riddance, Nineveh. Good Riddance, Nineveh. Goodbye and glad to see you go is basically the theme or the idea, the attitude perhaps that we can witness in these pages. Why is the prophet glad to see Nineveh go? Because God's glory is manifest with the destruction of this city. Would you stand with me out of reverence for the holy word of God? And let us consider these verses together. Listen as I read these words from Nahum 3, 1 through 10. Here we have the infallible word of the Lord. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face. And I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Verse 8, Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her? And her rampart a sea and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Today's text. And consequently, the exposition of the same may not fit into the preferred structure of an encouraging message to give you a pick-me-up for your week. So 
I want to apologize for that, but it would be sinful for me to do so. It is sinful, in fact, for any preacher or any approach to the Word of God to treat certain areas of Scripture that are heavy with weighty, judgmental truth as somehow unnecessary or somehow lacking in their relevance or somehow a needing, we need to soft-pedal them and, or twist them or lighten them up or whitewash them in some way so that they sound more agreeable to our postmodern ears, our ears that is influenced by postmodern sensibilities. We need now, as ever, and in some cases I want to say more than ever, the clear, direct Word of God that decrees what is just and worthy of sinfulness. Sinfulness in a nation that has rejected the clear Word of the Lord. You see, this is Nineveh of whom these words were spoken. Nineveh, who had received a message of grace and mercy through the prophet Jonah. Yes, he had prophesied first what they deserved, yet 40 days in Nineveh will be destroyed. But why was that destruction delayed? Because they heard the word of the Lord, they repented, they understood the authority behind that proclamation of the prophet, they bowed in reverence, repentance, sackcloth, ashes, from king and to the poorest among them, confess their sins and ask that God would have mercy on their souls, mercy on their city. God answered their pleas, and He waited in His destruction because the people turned to Him. But now, as we have said, another prophet comes along, and at this time, many years later, the city of Nineveh had turned away from the Lord and back to their idolatry and wickedness. Thus, as we have said, they are doubly culpable doubly responsible for the judgment that will come. Why? Because they are now sinning against a greater degree of light, if you will. They have heard the prophet in the past. They have rejected the word of the Lord, and now a second prophet has come. And these are chilling words, therefore, indeed. The ministry of the prophet Nahum serves in some part to show that the wicked city of Nineveh is a particular instance of the universal truth that God will dismantle the collective idolatry of His foes, though they seek refuge from His strong arm behind the social structure of a city or nation-state. That's a long sentence. I will apologize for that. Let me make it more simple. Nineveh is a particular instance of a general truth that when there is no place to hide from a just God. It is also an example that people often seek refuge behind a nation, a people, a war machine, a society, a 300-year world-influencing, world-dominating empire. That's what Assyria was at this time. Three centuries of world dominance. Three centuries of striking fear in the hearts of their enemies. Three centuries of an incredible economy secured by the sword. Three centuries of hubris, idolatry, and pride that was built up by taking these riches for granted and thinking that they came into their position uh, of their own strength, and therefore by their own strength they could fight off any and all of their foes. After all, who could stand against mighty Assyria with their war machines and with their fearsome approach and their rapacious uh, ransacking of their neighbors? Well, there was one who would stand up to Assyria and would destroy them in a matter of moments, and that is the Lord our God. There is no refuge to be found from the strong arm of the Lord behind a nation, behind a city-state, behind a social structure. 
And this is a message that we need today. How many of us in this land generally feel safe because of how strong our military is or the influence of American society or because we are the dominant superpower of the globe? It may last even a couple hundred years, perhaps even more, but this is no reason for confidence. The book of Nahum teaches us as much. The demise of these examples, like Nineveh, of the city of man portends, it foretells, it speaks of, it's prophetic, of the culminating judgments of history upon all wicked powers. The closing of the book, the closing book of the Bible, if you will, Revelation, reminds us as much, even as the closing verse of Nahum makes this clear as well, Nahum 3.19, there is no easing your hurt, your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. In other words, the demise of the city of Nineveh will be great news in the ears of those who have been on the receiving end of their tyranny and their evil all this time. There's reason to rejoice when God's judgments finally come in the destruction of those who in their rebellion have codified injustice by statute, hid behind their nation state, and done everything they can possibly think of to assure themselves in their own strength, only building their idolatrous standoff against the Lord of glory with more and more and more absurdity until He finally topples them over in a moment. This irreversible, widespread, and widely published and, uni- and universally celebrated calamity, calamity that has descended upon the Assyrians is directly proportional to the reach of their influence in the prime of their power. So in other words, as far as Assyria was able to influence the known world, that's as far as the glory of the Lord's uh, deliverance of their enemy, or, uh, of those who are under their thumb, and the glory of the Lord's judgments upon the nation were spread. When Assyria was destroyed, everyone who knew of Assyria because of their great empire was aware that a nation had been brought to its knees by the sovereign power of Almighty God. The bigger they are, so to speak, the harder they fall, and the more power the Word of God to oppose His enemies and to proclaim justice and victory over these types of forces is spread. The operative political philosophy of of Assyria is not so strange to us these days, though the record of this nation's influence may seem all but lost to ancient history. In other words, these ideas, the ideals, and the values that were uh, very popular and influential in Assyrian thought, they exist in many forms today. Nineveh's policymakers and governors would instantly resonate, may I submit, with many post-enlightenment values of our day. These are operating values of governments and states, powers and principalities in our day, even our own nation. Take progressivism, for instance. What is progressivism? It's a philosophy which assumes advancements in, let's say, science, technology, economic development, social organization, and academics define and enable progress toward ideal conditions for humanity. That might sound good at first read. That is wicked. That is idolatrous. What it says is the ability of a nation state, a people, a society, a civilization, 
With all these different means at their disposal, like technology, economic development, social organization, their power, their influence, their economy, their resources, they, if they trust all of these things to define and to enable progress towards ideal conditions for humanity, they are trusting in another set of abilities and resources to gain them peace on earth other than the Prince of Peace. We serve a jealous God. Nahum has taught us as much. The Lord is jealous and avenging. Nahum 1-2, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries, keeps wrath for His enemies. How do we describe the jealousy of God? Well, we understand it to be a feeling uh, or a, a sense in the attributes of God, of His defense of His glory, when it's challenged by those who attribute to idols that which He alone retains. God will not stand for mockery, where people rely on their abilities, technology, environment, social organization, academics, political philosophy, experts in any field, Pentagon, CIA, FBI, uh, TSA, and the acronyms could multiply into ad infinitum absurdity. People who rely on these types of things as a substitute for the exclusive power of the Almighty are idol worshipers, and their notion that trusting in the things of man will lead them in progressing towards peace and joy and a utopia and as something of a heaven on earth, this is a philosophy which will always end in two ways, either repentance or judgment. And this philosophy is popular these days. Almost it would seem as much as it was then. These ideas fit Assyria and its capital Nineveh like a glove. Thus we have the advantage of hindsight in their case through the writings of Nahum, to see how it worked out for them. How did it work out for, for the a city of Nineveh? Well, we learn exactly how, and then we can apply that to our case today, can we not? So let us consider a few points in our text today under this heading, the progress of progressivism, or you could say institutional idolatry. What is the progression of institutional idolatry? The love and the uh, trust in and the exaltation of the state or the people, or the nation, or its powers, or its resources? What is the progress of this kind of thing? Well, instead of human advancement unto glory, we see the exact opposite is true. <clears throat> Four points in our message today, in our passage today. Predator, prostitute, pariah, and prisoner. There is a digression. There is a falling down. There is a regression, if you will, not a progression, when man worships idols and trusts in them for his future. He starts out as a predator. Perhaps he has some power, but it's not the kind of power that God will be pleased with. It's the kind of power that seeks to better oneself over hatred for neighbor, or the kind of power that seeks to gather for yourself according to your own resources without regard to the King of kings and Lord of lords. But then it's worse still. Uh, this idolatry of institutions... And what was represented in the collective is a form of prostitution. The profligate immorality only increases, and the shameful consequences multiply. More than this, instead of being a fearful influence in perpetuity, they become a pariah, which means a member of a low caste, uh, despised, rejected, and outcast. That term comes from southern India, where the lowest of castes were the pariah. So instead of being this fearsome warlord-type state whom we better pay tribute or else, 
There comes a time in the life course of a nation like Assyria where they become a byword and they are outcast, rejected, despised, and spit upon in the memory of their surrounding nations. And finally, they are taken into exile. They become prisoners. They themselves become submitted to the tyranny that they once exercised over others. The predator has now become the prey. This is the progress of idolatry. This is the progress of progressivism, if you will. Consider first predator. Listen to how the nation of Assyria, as represented by Nineveh, is described in verses 1 through 3. Woe to the bloody city. That would be our first modifier, bloody. All full of lies and plunder. You could highlight those two words, lies, plunder, bloody. No end to the prey. So four terms that are descriptive of this land. Bloody, lying, plunder, and prey. This matches nicely with 2.13 in the previous passage where God describes the kinds of judgment He will bring upon them. These we've identified as soft targets in their nation. Notice verse 13 of chapter 2, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. He says first, I will burn your chariots with smoke. The Lord will destroy their war machine. He will emasculate them. He will take away their power. Secondly, uh, and the sword shall devour your young lions. The second target of God's judgment will be the next generation. The future invested in the young, the ambitious, the confident, and the braves, if you will, that will be cut off. Thirdly, I will cut off your prey from the earth. So this is their means of economic uh, resources, their way of gathering for themselves wealth through their war campaigns. And finally, your messages, your messengers shall no longer be heard. Your influence and your status will be reduced to nothing. Your authority will be undercut. So why will God do these four things? Attack them, as we have said, in their power and their posterity, their prosperity and their prestige. He will do so because they are bloody, full of lies, they plunder, and they uh, make their neighbors prey. Notice in verse 2, the crack of the whip. Uh, Let me pause before I read the rest of this. This is some of the most spectacular poetry in the Old Testament, descriptive, and even in its translated form in our language, brings you immediately to scenes of war. It's almost like you can feel yourself being there. Our last message in Nahum, we titled War Poetry. And this is a classic example of war poetry, continuing verse 2. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses, bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. It's as if you're watching a movie and you see scene after scene in your mind of carnage, the absolute fallout of a genocidal war campaign where atrocity atrocity upon atrocity is heaped up in the record of this nation's infamous exploits. And this is the record of Assyria. They would crack the whip, the rumble of the wheel, the fearsome blitzkrieg of their war efforts, their machines that they had built for themselves were innovative. Their technology had exceeded their neighbors. They declared dominance through force over the entire region. I saw a base relief or a bas relief carving on an Assyrian wall, extremely well preserved on the internet during my study this week. And it was a warrior who was swimming underwater, breathing out of something like a goat skin with a snorkel. And he was heading towards a vulnerable place in the defenses 
of one of the uh, cities that they were no doubt laying siege to. Um, they, there's also pictures of siege towers, which was an innovative uh, use of mechanical means to take down what would otherwise be impregnable city walls. They would build these towers where they could defend themselves from the top against projectiles and oil and the like being poured over the walls, and underneath the battering rams or the miners would just wail away at the wall until finally they were able to breach and to make their way in. And by these means, Assyria was an absolute fearsome, dominant, uh, terroristic force to their neighbors. And so these images would almost trigger, if you will, the PTSD of those who are overrun by this absolutely uh, devastating force of war. Horsemen charging, flashing sword, and glittering a spear. So these were the ideas, or these were the terms, the descriptive language that Nahum employs to describe this predator. They were like a lion. Upon the walls of Assyria, you can also see pictures of Assyrians uh, depicted hunting lions. And these lions represent their neighbors, other strongmen and rulers. And they boasted in the fact that they could defang a lion, that they could hunt other predators and turn other predators, if you will, into prey. A predator is deceitful. It says, woe to the bloody city that's full of lies. In Exodus 18.21, the law of God gives us terms by which strong leaders ought to be chosen. Moses instructs the people, or the Lord instructs Moses to do the following. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. If you take that instruction from the law of God and basically reverse it, you would have the qualifications for an Assyrian leader under their operating values and philosophy. Take one who doesn't fear God, but who fears idols. Take one who isn't trustworthy, but will, ab- will use deceit to his own advantage. Take one who doesn't hate a bribe, but who loves money so much that he's willing to risk his own life in an unjust war to gain more loot for himself and his country. And then place these kind of men over thousands, hundreds, and so on. You see, the nation of Assyria was completely disorderly, completely upside down. And from deceit to bloodthirstiness, they had disparaged the law of God. And for this, they must pay. Turn with me quickly to 2 Kings uh, chapter 18. I want to give you one example of this deceit that was perpetrated against Judah. This is an example of the lying propaganda campaigns that were deployed without regard to truth, without regard to ethics, without regard to the fear of God. Uh, To be anachronistic, this is Machiavellianism in the ancient world. Machiavelli was a... uh, uh, he, he was a philosopher who taught uh, uh, new ideas in more modern history that the most successful kings are the ones who use even eth- ethics as leverage to their advantage without regard to any higher absolute authority or answering to God himself. And notice this example in 2 Kings 18.22. So this is Rabshakeh. He's the counselor to Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and he's bringing his message to the people of Judah as they're surrounding the city of Jerusalem and getting ready to lay siege to God's people. He says, But if you say to me, We trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? 
a lie. Hezekiah is not out for your best interest. You think the Lord will help you? He's out there tearing down the high places. What were the high places that Hezekiah was tearing down? Not altars to the true God, idolatrous places of worship, that which God had not prescribed. These were the places that the people had set up in rebellion, and Hezekiah had torn them down. This was cause for hope for the people. Yet the twisting, deceitful, predatory ways of Sennacherib and his counselor of Assyria were saying that there was reason to be fearful, and they're equating these altars to false gods with the altar to the true God. Absolute lies. Come now, make a wager with my master, a king of Assyria, verse 23. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. You think that's true? Yeah, right. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and uh, for horsemen? Moreover, it is without the Lord that I have come up against... Moreover, it is without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. He's saying, Yahweh said to him that he should go up and destroy. Your God told me to come and wreck your nation. Absolute lies. They're intended to confuse, to discourage, to demoralize, and to destroy this people. Was there any fear of God in Rabshakeh's words? Absolutely none. All he was doing was manipulating the terms in front of him in order to give him what he thought would be the best advantage to destroy the spirit of these people that he might be successful in defeating one more nation for his, in his victory parade. Will he be successful? Hezekiah and the people did not listen to these words. They rejected them and they cried out to God. And as a foretaste of judgment to come, God intervened on their behalf. 2 Kings 19.35, that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. The people didn't lift a finger, didn't sharpen a sword, didn't even hitch up a chariot. The angel of the Lord, unilaterally on his own accord with the power of heaven, slew nearly 200,000 enemy soldiers who did not fear God and trusted in propaganda instead of the Most High who sought refuge in lies rather than refuge in truth. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at, where? Nineveh. And as he was worshiping the house of Nishrach, his god, Adamelech and Sherezar, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. The writing was on the wall. And Nahum doubled down in what to expect when an unrepentant nation continues to trust in its predatory ways, rather than in the one true God who can defend His people in a single night by dispatching His armies of glory to destroy their enemies, 185,000 strong. This is the message that we see. A sharp contrast between those that trust in the Lord and those who trust in themselves. Those who trust in themselves are predators, deceitful, greedy, and bloody. They grab for themselves all the riches without regard to God's law, thou shalt not steal. Their taxes are confiscatory and unjust. They demand tribute of their neighbors upon pain of destruction of their property and their person. And this relates to our day as well. Anytime a nation demands payment from a people without just cause to do so, and if they deny it, and if they do not, bring that tribute, bring their taxes into the storehouse, they will be subject to prosecution, 
even imprisonment and sword and so on. Anytime a nation does this, they're acting in the spirit of a predator, of Nineveh, of Assyria, not in fearful acknowledgement of God's sovereign word and law over them to whom they too must answer, but instead they've set themselves up as God, a lawless rule who demands whatever they want by way of tribute and resources and property and service of their subjects without regard to God's word that says each person is made as an individual in the image of Almighty God. And fearing me means respecting that. We have room for repentance in our land, do we not? Are there deceitful, greedy, bloody, and predatory ways evidenced in our land? Yes, there are. Nahum is written for us. Secondly, progress of progressivism. So we move from predator to prostitute. Verse 4, for all the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. Well, this is pointed graphic language. This is intense indeed. As a prostitute, which is a term that fitly describes the nation of Assyria and the city of Nineveh, we find them seducing nations. Because of their growing influence through their war campaigns and otherwise, they're spreading their ideas empire-wide. And what are their ideas? Their ideas are idolatry. We read of Sennacherib's gods, did we, gods, did we not? He's in his temple worshiping Nishrach. I have no idea who that is, but I can tell you this. He does not exist. Or if he does, he's a demon. He's probably the god of war or absolute dominance or bloodthirst or something like that. But with the advancing armies of Assyria, they were promoting the ideas of Nishrach wherever they went. And each time they took over another nation and said, you will now submit to our rule and law under Nishrach, they were seducing the people. They were forcing idolatry upon them, or they were tantalizing or seducing them with the message that our God is more powerful than yours. After all, we've just defeated you in war. They were prostituting in this way. They were breaking covenant, that is to say, with the one true God, and they were worshiping and serving others in His stead. The one true God had revealed them Himself to them through the prophet Jonah, and now they were unfaithful in their covenant to Him. And instead of keeping that unique and exclusive relationship pure and holy, they had now prostituted themselves out to other gods, and they were seducing nations to do the same. Notice that this idea is not unique to this nation at this time. In fact, idolatry all through the ages is pictured in the book of Revelation in the same terms. Revelation 17, for instance, 1 through 6, we find these indicting words. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me. Come, I will show you the judgments of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. So this is a widespread problem. This isn't just an Assyria issue. Uh, Babylon is actually the spirit of the age, a term the Bible uses to describe the spirit of the age. And Assyria was no different. And today, men and nations who reject Almighty God are living as prostitutes, as they seduce nations and peoples according to terms other than the one true God. It says verse 3, He carried me away 
uh, in the Spirit into the wilderness, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast uh, I was full, uh, that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The appearance of power and authority, heads and horns represent. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. So here we have a semblance of riches. We have at least a temporal uh, prosperity that is unparalleled to their nations around her. So these things make her feel secure, do they not? She is powerful and she is rich. She's holding in her hands this golden cup, but what is it full of? It's abominations, the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes, and of earth's abominations. And as I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. So this, these forces are absolutely antichrist. They set their face against and to the destruction of the people of God. And of course, Revelation goes on to proclaim the destruction of the same. The prostitute ideas that are seducing peoples and nations through their powerful activists like kings and nations and worldviews and ideas that send forth their missionary evangelists even in our day, in our nation and others for idolatry and self-indulgence will be destroyed. They think they will not because of their riches, because of their influence, and because of their power relative to their bank accounts and to their, uh, war, uh, when their, uh, their war-making armaments. But this is foolish indeed. God will not stand for the seducing of the nations indefinitely. There will come a day of reckoning. There are shameful consequences, Nahum goes on to say, for those who prostitute themselves so. Behold, I am against you, again, Nahum 3, 5, declares the Lord of hosts. And note this language, I will lift up your skirts over your face. The most embarrassing, you think, uh, you know, how many have had that dream? I have no idea what the psychological uh, circumstances are at play, but it seems like it's almost a universal experience that you have that dream where you wake up and you're just uh, afraid and, and, and sure enough, you're like naked in a classroom or something like that. And why is that such a terrifying uh, intrinsically terrifying psychological idea to us. It's because it's directly associated with shame. To be uh, naked in full view of a whole audience uh, in that way is something that we naturally uh, uh, experience as a shameful and horrifically embarrassing circumstance. Something that would be so traumatic, it, even the thought of it, uh, even the imagination of it can trouble your dreams and imagine how it would affect you if it happened in real life. And God is saying, this kind of public shaming will be the judgment for your immorality. I'm coming against you. I'll lift your skirts over your face, and I will parade your shame to the nations. They will look upon your nakedness, and they will laugh at you when you are made absolutely debased. Your dignity is gone, and you're demoralized in this way. This idea of lifting the skirts or exposing the shame of the people is the idea of reducing their reputation among the nations to an embarrassing spectacle. The nation becomes a tabloid cover story. You know, those salacious stories of immorality, that which should be reserved for the private life of an individual, hopefully in the covenant of marriage. But they break that covenant. They participate in all kinds of lewd and perverse behavior. And if there are people of some notoriety, like say a celebrity or a politician, that news comes out, 
uh, people are interested in that sort of thing, and it becomes a, a tabloid-type cover story, and it's all over the news. And in this way, God brings judgment to a people. The reputation of a nation who is living in flagrant immorality, unrepentant sin, the reputation among the nations becomes an embarrassing spectacle. The nation becomes a tabloid cover story. Their dignity, respect, fear, reverence, standing, nobility, status, class that they once enjoyed on the world stage is reduced to a laughingstock, reduced to a laughingstock. Now, this application is not going to be difficult. Have you looked at the news lately? Have you looked at the news lately? I mean, we have porn stars lining up to indict politicians for one-night stands they were paid to be quiet for for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I have no idea the truth behind all of these allegations, but I do have a sense that we know something of what it's like for a nation to be publicly shamed because of flagrant immorality, not just in our politicians, they're representative of a people. Flagrant, flagrant immorality that is featured across the board, even in places of power that are supposed to be reserved, where the dignified, the statesmen, the elite, and those with class, suddenly our world stage is laughing because we have been made a laughingstock as the Lord lifts up the skirts, as it were, as of the dignity of a world power to parade our shame before our neighbors. Now, if my assessment of our current situation is correct, let us see it in light of Nahum's prophecy. Let us see it for what it is. It is an example of the judgment we deserve and judgment that is upon us, and it should move us to respond as the people once did to Jonah's prophecy. Sackcloth, ashes, repentance, humility, not doubling down in our hubris and pride or defending the indefensible, but instead weeping and crying out that God would be merciful to a people who has spread their immorality like a prostitute, who is a missionary evangelist for idolatry to the farthest corners of the earth, lewdness all over the globe as a result of our entertainment industry and American culture and otherwise all over the all over the place, like a moral plague. Under this prostitute uh, idea or this prostitute identity of a nation in such a crisis, we find that there are real causes for judgment. And just, it raises this question in my mind, when the history textbooks are written, which lay out the supposed causes for international conflict, what will they cite? Have you ever read a textbook? It's like the assassination of the Archbishop Ferdinand something something. My history is really good, obviously. World War I started, and you know, so the cause of World War I was this assassination. Or, you know, um, you know wait until they see the whites of their eyes, and there's the uh, something massacring the cause of the American Revolution. And you look for these trigger points, these places that were the flashpoint of an international conflict, particularly with the World Wars, it's very complicated and interesting. Well, the Scriptures give us some understanding of the true causes of international conflict. Have you ever read a history book that said the reason we descended into such chaos and war is because of flagrant immorality, abuse of power for financial gain, shameless covenant breaking, or deceitful exploitation? I submit to you that those causes are more rare in our estimation and analysis of why we're going to war. But Nahum would have us look first at these places. What about our hearts? 
What about our actions? What about our values? What about our culture? What about our celebrated ideals? These are the real causes of war that bring us into never-ending conflict, that steal the young people on the battlefields, that either destroy them psychologically through the stress of unjust conflict or take their lives on the bloody battlefields of, uh, of absurd clashes when all that really was needed to prevent them was repentance. So thirdly, studying the progress of progressivism. It's real encouraging, is it not? Don't worry, we'll get to something more uh, hopeful at the end. Predator, prostitute, let's go down one more step, pariah. Here we'll just touch on it very briefly. Uh, verse 6, name 3. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? And this to illustrate the complete reversal of fortunes. A nation who moments before was revered and celebrated is all of the sudden uh, seen as filthy and contemptuous and a spectacle. Their influence is destroyed. And as history records, it was just a three-month campaign when the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, rose up and finally defeated the Assyrians. Uh, we see the same under Belshazzar, where Babylon itself is defeated, and it seems like less than an hour the Medes and the Persians come in, and while he's at his drunken feast, and God proclaims judgment on the wall by his own hand, the city is being overrun and taken to its knees in an hour. And in the same case as Nineveh, the waterways, people say, of Babylon served as tributaries for their enemies to overrun the city and to come in, sort of like the Trojan horse being pulled in, just a small number wreak havoc, and all of a sudden this great empire is brought to its knees. This happens in such a short amount of time that it, it constitutes a complete reversal of the attitudes of people. Nineveh, who a day before, as it were, was revered, is now seen as a ridiculous spectacle as she is absolutely defeated. And that she becomes a pariah, low caste, despised, rejected, outcast. She becomes revolting. Filth, contempt, and spectacle now attend her way. In the news, uh, I, I've used this ex example a few times lately, but it strikes me as a poignant one. Harvey Weinstein, uh, your you've probably become familiar with his name, a Hollywood mogul, a producer of many successful films. In almost a day or one news cycle, he fell from being referred to as, quote, God by Meryl Streep to a monster by the hashtag MeToo movement. In one moment, a powerful, influential culture shaper like that was reduced to a revolting idea among the people, whereas just moments before, if you will, he was seen as highly powerful and influential. He became a pariah when God brought judgment as were against him, and so it is with a people who follow his lead and those like him. This is a pitiless demise. Nobody attends the funeral of this nation who has lost to history this way. In fact, their demise becomes a foreshadowing of hell itself. The book of Isaiah ends very similar to the, book, or to the end of Nahum. I'll just read you the last verse. After contrasting the city of God, which is new heavens and new earth, or after proclaiming the city of God in these terms of new heaven and new earth, and this glorious promise of God's rule and reign without the stain of sin anymore, we see the contrast of the wicked rulers in Isaiah's day in verse 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. 
So this pitiless demise, this revolting situation, the destruction that comes in time of a nation that has rejected the Lord so thoroughly and thus deserves this judgment, their state after God's war campaign demolishes them becomes a foreshadow of hell itself. Everything that they once trusted in reduced and shown to be the wicked, filthy, contemptuous spectacle that it is. Final point this morning, the progress of institutional idolatry or progressivism is prisoner. The predator becomes the prey. The master becomes a slave. Verse 8, are you better than thieves that sat by the Nile? Again, this is Nahum 3. With water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall. Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers, yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Who's he speaking of? Thebes. He's saying, learn a lesson from a prior nation that was conquered, who had all of the pride and power that you now boast. She became an exile. Can you expect any different? She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. That's the future generation, the posterity, the young lions, as it were, destroyed. For her honored men, were uh, lots were cast. So that is a dramatic fall from grace and dignity. Those who are influential and celebrated and elite, now they're being gambled for on the, on the slave market. And all her great men were bound in chains. So her leaders are led as victory trophies, humiliated through the streets, paraded, as a spectacle. Will you learn from Thebes? What's good for the goose is good for the gander. The interesting note in the context here is that Thebes, guess who conquered Thebes? Assyria. Assyria had actually conquered Thebes, this uh, formidable city-state, as it were, that sat by the Nile with water around her. And Cush, that was her strength. She had her allies. There was something of an empire. So note what Nahum is doing. He is using an example of a nation Assyria conquered to show them their own vulnerabilities. That seems counterintuitive, does it not? Most nations look at the nations they conquered as reason for confidence and strength. Rabshakeh was doing this when he came to threaten Hezekiah and company. He said, you're going to become just like all these other nations. You think that, so if the gods of X nation, Y nation, and Z nation couldn't help them, do you think Yahweh will help you? They would look at the nations they had conquered previous as reason for confidence and strength. But Nahum turns the tables and says, no, this nation that you conquered, you made a formidable city-state captive by your, uh, by your siege and so on, that's going to happen to you. It's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. Now, why does this make sense? Why is it, in fact, biblically speaking, not counterintuitive? Why? Because God is sovereign in history. And God is sovereign over world powers. God had used Nahum as a tool of judgment in his hand. I'm sorry, God had used Nineveh as a tool of judgment in his hand to bring destruction against Thebes. God would use Babylon as a tool in his hand as destruction against Assyria. God had used Assyria in his hand as, a, as destruction and judgment against the northern kingdoms of Israel. And only the foolish nation would think this was proof that God won't use another tool in his hand to bring destruction against us. Only a fool who denies the word of God would think such a thing. Do we fall into that category? Do we look at the successful exploits of our past war campaigns in this nation to think we have by that measure reason to be confident? No. We as a nation may have been used as a tool in God's hands to bring judgment against a deserving nation, but that ought to lead us to fear of Him, to repent of our sin, 
to place our faith and trust in Him because just as He used us as a tool against another nation, so He can raise up a nation as a tool against us. Now, this destruction or this message was a prelude to the same message that we give, would be given to Babylon. Habakkuk 2. A pro, talk about prophets in arms. I mean, they, they were probably almost contemporaries, Habakkuk and Nahum. But Habakkuk's prophesying to another city, Babylon, who now was filled with hubris and pride because they had conquered Assyria. But there is a word for them as well, and we find it in the next book of the Bible. Woe to him who builds a town with blood. This is Habakkuk 2.12. And founds a city on iniquity. So he's prophesying the same thing to Babylon that Nahum prophesied to Assyria. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. May I submit to you, unless a government acknowledges that fact, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, it is not safe for them to wage war, to make policy, to write laws, to legislate, or to promote their ideas anywhere. Unless they believe, unless they are convinced, unless they know that they serve at the pleasure of Almighty God, and in a moment He could crush them, and He will be victorious in history, and there is coming a time when His glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, then you ask the question, do I stand in the way of God's glory covering the earth? Am I a dark stain? Are we a dark stain on God's glory because we have rejected His Word and lived in flagrant immorality, have exploited others for financial gain, exercised abuse of power, are guilty of shameless covenant breaking, and deceitfully exploited our neighbors? If so, we better repent because there is coming a day that a hammer will be raised up against us if we do not. So, so as Assyria goes... I should say, as Thebes goes, so goes Assyria. As Assyria goes, so goes Babylon. As Babylon goes, so goes Media Persia. As Media Persia goes, so goes the Greeks, so goes the Romans, so goes the chain of unrighteous government, powers, and principalities through history. Where will America go? Where will we go? How do we apply a word like this? Two ways may I suggest. Way number one, preach the truth. We deserve judgment if we do not repent. It's very simple. If we see any signs of the kind of attitude and morality and ideas that Nahum faced in his day, will we not speak to them with the same boldness and authority that he did in hopes that people might see that they serve at the pleasure of a sovereign God over them and that nations might be brought to their knees in sackcloth and ashes, realizing that they have nothing to point to for confidence that they are more powerful than him? Let us hope that that is that, let us hope that that is what God will do for us now. But if not, there's a second way that we, we see the message of Nahum applied. Turn to Revelation 19, and we'll close with this. Revelation 19, there's coming an ultimate judgment. And these glorious and symbolic pictures identify these moments, symbolic importance through history. And they use them to describe circumstances which... Uh, we have with us today and will have with us to some degree until the Lord declares final, full, and ultimate victory over them. And so we find Babylon to be a great city in Revelation 18, 21. Babylon, the great city, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And then we see that all of the uh, glories that a society, a civilization, well-developed one boasts will be silenced. Art and song will be 
reduced, productivity and economy will be destroyed, agriculture will come to a screeching halt, and uh, no more uh, technology, lamps and lights, and even the voice of the bridegroom and bride, the strength of family will be reduced. God is doing, as we have mentioned before, this four-part or more targeted judgment campaign against Babylon. Your merchants were the great ones on the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. Verse 24, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. How will the message of Nineveh be received, of Nahum be received in our culture today? Will the figurative blood of the saints be shed if we bring the truth of God's word against the immorality, against the injustice, against the idolatry, against the perversions of our day? Well, we will be slain, as it were, in the media oftentimes when we bring the truth of God's word. But what is the message? If in a nation the blood of the prophets and of saints continues to be found, judgment will soon follow. Verse 19, after this I heard what seemed to be, uh, this is chapter 19, verse 1, what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Hallelujah to our Lord who brings judgment against the rebellious who do not repent. The book of Revelation details how onlooking believers are to respond to God's devastating judgments in history. How are we to respond? With worship, adoration, and anticipation of His continuing triumph through the ages unto consummate glory. And what essentially sets us apart from the condemned in this picture? If we go on to read in Revelation 19, it is blood, but it is the blood of the Lamb. So there are two types of people, if you will. On this final day, those who take refuge in the city of man and will be destroyed by the conquering king in the city of God. But what distinguishes the two? The blood of the Lamb. The fact that you are redeemed by the shed blood of Christ, so you don't need to seek uh, salvation or security in the shed blood of others. I saw heavens open, verse 11. Behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, it's called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. We see him making war, do we not, in our text today, in Nahum. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns, symbols of authority. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. So here we have the picture, saints. We are clothed in white linen because His blood was shed. We ride victorious behind the King of Kings, ultimately speaking, because He has made Himself known victoriously in the saving of His people and the judgment of His enemies. So let us preach while there yet remains today repentance for this land. But if God brings judgment, let us worship Him because He, our glorious conquering King, is defeating His enemies in history and will do so ultimately at the end of time. Let us close in prayer. Oh, Father, this is indeed a heavy word that we read today, not just because of the experience of nations that have gone before, 
but because of the experience that troubles us in the nation in which we live. But I pray that you would give us grace and these and tools from your scriptures by your Spirit's use to interact under these conditions in a way that will not compromise your name, but will actually represent a refuge for those who might, by your Spirit's drawing, be called out of darkness into your marvelous light. To join us in the victory parade behind our conquering Messiah, who has shed His blood for us, the price paid for the white robes that we wear in His victory parade. Lord, may we be found faithful doing so when your judgment comes. But if it would please you, I pray that you would bring this nation to its knees like Nineveh. So from king to pauper, we would once again confess that blessed is the nation whose God, who the Lord is their God, not themselves, not their power, not anything else. I thank you, Lord, that your word is sufficient in any case so that we can be equipped for every good work in the meantime. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.